Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Long Short. It's widely recognized that there are two mega trends gathering increasing momentum today, not just impacting on the alternative investment industry, but on wider society too. These, of course, being responsible investment in ESG and technology. Regular listeners of The Long Short will know that the topic of ESG has been discussed on several occasions to date. Today, we'll focus on the technological revolution taking place, and specifically the influence of alternative data, from how it's been used in the front office and the way asset managers trade and execute, as well as manage the operations of the business, and how all of this is changing the talent landscape for hedge funds and the wider asset management universe. Just as the NASDAQ continues to lead the way in stock markets, so asset managers that fully embrace the use of technology in both their investment and operational processes will reap the benefits. To discuss all of this, we are delighted to be joined by Professor Keith Black, Managing Director and Charter Holder Numero Uno at FDP Institute, which is part of the Kaya Association. Keith, welcome to The Long Shore. Uh, Thanks, Drew. It's great to be here. Perhaps, Keith, then you can give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself and how you became so passionate about all things quant. Well, it, it's uh, it's kind of a long story that uh, in in high school I probably knew this was my track, and so undergraduate uh, studies were in uh, math, computer science, and and economics. So uh, as a as a young child, I was uh, about all things quant. I went straight from from undergrad to a uh, a master's, and that was highly quantitative as well in finance and operations research. And then I went straight into uh, into banking after that. So I, I traded. Uh, futures and options and, and commodities for a while. Uh, went to the the trading floor in Chicago with the colored jackets and the hand signals, uh, trading equity options. And then I started in uh, what they call quantitative equity. And what I was doing there was I was looking at thousands of companies at once and were using things like uh, price earnings ratios and, and price momentum and, uh, and earnings surprise to predict stock prices. So you went from using the abacus to sourcing log tables to using Texas Instruments calculator to doing econometrics and quantitative science to where you are now. There were some punch cards involved as well as yes. uh, storage on cassette tapes. So so when you think about quants today, that's often associated with uh, alternative data, machine learning, artificial intelligence big data and all these other buzzwords that go flying around when you're talking about a quantitative approach to investing. But for some of our listeners out there, and admittedly, including myself here, who don't really know what all of these are as much as I might like, could you just 
work through those and just break them down a little bit? So uh, there are a lot of buzzwords there, and uh, we, we try to, to make them simple and understandable. So artificial intelligence is simply uh, computers trying to mimic in some way uh, human thought. And machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And what we're doing in, in machine learning is a variety of, of techniques. Many of them are based on statistics and, and regression. But what we're trying to do in machine learning in many cases is classification and clustering. So which of these uh, topics, which of these ideas, which of these stocks are most alike? And so if we could group different categories of investments together uh, using machines, uh, sometimes we'll have it as uh, as uh, labeled data where we know what we're looking for. But the computer is really good at um, at unstructured and unlabeled data, and we give them a, a, a sea of data, and they're able to find the connections between different stocks and different ideas in a way that would be cumbersome for, uh, for people to look at. Now, the idea of, of big data is that there's more data that's been created and saved in the last two years than in the history of the world before that. So there's an acceleration in the, the data that's available. And big data, uh, in a simple way, is more data than one computer can handle. And so if you're taking a, a tremendously large database, you would need to use a, um, a network of, of computers or distributed cloud storage to, uh, to analyze that. Um, so you've got that explosion of data, but with it, you also have a huge leap and advances being made in technology. So, for example, with the smartphone that most of us own today and the type of power that you can generate with a smartphone and its ability to access new information sets, including traditional sets and non-traditional sets. What do we mean by that? So what I was working with in, in the 1990s is what we call traditional data. So every publicly traded company uh, has, issues a quarterly report. And in that quarterly report, we're going to disclose our income statement and our balance sheet, our revenues and our profits. And that's what we call traditional data. And we can marry those, uh, those corporate disclosures on a quarterly basis with um, price data from the stock market, from price data from the options market. And then we have have the sell side analyst as well. They work at the commercial banks, they work at the investment banks. They might cover 50 stocks in a given industry and they're going to put a buy, sell and hold ranking on a stock. They're going to give an earnings estimate and they're gonna give a revenue estimate. And that's what we call the, the traditional data. It's it's super easy to work with. Uh, any any kind of database um, is, is going to be uh, relatively what we call structured. And so if you go to Bloomberg or FactSet or um, or Refinitiv, any of these other um, uh, databases, it's relatively straightforward. We, we have the timestamp, we have the, the name of the stock, and everything's all uh, neatly organized in their, in their field. So that's what we call uh, traditional data. And traditional data has been studied by academics for a very long time. And so this is where you get factor models. And so uh, value stocks and growth stocks and momentum stocks, all of that language came out of this, uh, this traditional data that was uh, in, in uh, predominant uses in, in the 90s and studied by professors even before that. 
So, Keith, you have described to us the traditional data set form and you know how they are structured data sets. But there is an area of growing interest, and that's the use of non-traditional data sets. Um, certainly uh, became quite prominent in their use throughout the pandemic with uh, various industry sectors, you know, in particular retail sector, uh, thinking about um, financial actors, like central banks um, and financial services, um, all looking to use non-traditional data more. Um, you know, what are they and what's the advantage of using them? When we're using that traditional data that's disclosed on a quarterly basis, that's very useful for, for pricing and valuing stocks on a long-term basis, three months, six months, 12 months, even up to two years, those quarterly statements are super valuable. But what we're seeing now is the world is speeding up because of this alternative data. So what do we mean by alternative data? It's basically not traditional data. It's not being disclosed by the companies. And so uh, people are, are sometimes shocked to hear what, uh, what Google or, or Facebook is disclosing about them and what, what their, the cookies on their, on their web browsers disclosing about them. So hedge funds are reading your email. Hedge funds are buying your credit card transactions. They're, uh, they're parsing everything you're putting out on social media. There's, uh, there's drones and satellites. They're, they're pinging the location of your cell phone. We could scrape the web and we could predict the price of a stock based on how many people a company is, is posting to hire on LinkedIn. And so there's all of this, uh, this data that's being created on the web, and, and all of that is faster than the traditional data. So when, when I was a, a quantitative equity manager, we would wait and we would know the minute at which that quarterly report was going to come out, and the stock price could react very significantly uh, in the in the seconds or minutes after that that earnings report was announced. And in many cases, uh, the the vast majority of that stock price change in excess of its industry for the year would happen just in the four weeks in which they they announced their earnings report. And so basically, when there was no news, the company would perform in line with its industry. And we would wait for that quarterly report to come out. And all of that news dropped at once. And we had a big stock price reaction. But what's happening now is this alternative data has a super short time frame. So what we're trying to do is ultimately predict the revenue and earnings that that company is going to announce. So historically, we waited for that earnings report to give us this big price reaction. But now what we're seeing is that price reaction is being distributed over the quarter because when we're reading emails, we're trying to add up the e-commerce revenue for all of these companies that, that sell online. We're trying to figure out uh, consumer activity. And that data is giving us a view within that quarter as to what that revenue and earnings are going to be. And so it's called now casting rather than waiting for the, the quarter to end and the company to give us that information. We have this idea that we know something, and especially in the third month of that, uh, of that fiscal quarter for that company, a lot of that information might already be out in the market in form of, of alternative data. 
And, and maybe you could help me sort of put this in the context of, of maybe the last decade as well when it comes to asset managers, because, you know, as we mentioned, in many in many instances, this data is very new and being created or being used for the first time or at least in, a, in only the last year or so. But is there can you foresee a time when the term alternative data becomes a bit redundant in the sense that, you know, as, as we mentioned, that everybody has a phone now. The access to data is now a world away from where it was a decade ago in the sense that you, when you think about the, the classic examples of satellite imaging of car parks and uh, shadows on oil tankers and, and, and all these really interesting examples you hear. Now, many asset managers or, or even some retail investors can have access to this, what, what might be considered alternative data. Is there a time when alternative data will just become data? So one of the things that, that quantitative investors are most concerned about is what's called the crowded trade, right? And so if, if everyone is in on the trade in the same direction, or if everyone is using the same data, the value of that data might go away. And we're, we're concerned that maybe uh, the, the credit card companies that have been selling transactions, that so many people are using that, and it's relatively straightforward to use, that maybe that signal is, uh, is being compounded into the stock price very quickly. And people who use that are getting less and less of an advantage. And so the advantage of using this uh, is going to be most pronounced in, in data that's that's hard to get, data that's hard to process, or uh, especially data that's proprietary. And so if you're able as an asset manager to, to come up with, uh, with a data set that no one else is using, uh, that's likely to continue to be, uh, to be quite lucrative. And one thing that's, that's super interesting is that we hear that if you buy a data set that's already cleaned and already processed and it gives you kind of signals on individual stocks, that that is going to be less lucrative than taking that raw data set, warts and all, and cleaning it and organizing it yourself. Because if you start with with kind of a blank slate and a, and a mass of data, you have the ability to, to build models or insights that might be different than, than other people are using. So the more people who are using a specific data set, the easier it is to use, the, the harder it's going to be to profit from that because that data is uh, moving into the stock price more quickly. So we could sort of think about it as uh, asset managers are sort of being pushed further and further into the wilderness when it comes to finding this alternative data. Uh, and, and, and there is some advantage to be moving first into a particular space of a new source of data, even though there are some challenges around that being quite noisy, quite unstructured. But there are potentially nuggets in there as well. Is that is that fair to say when it comes to sort of the the, the I imagine the challenges and I imagine there's also a, a cost attached to that and some issues around applying that in a way that will actually uh, give you an edge and you, you're not just sort of torturing unstructured data sets to the point where it sends you off in the wrong direction. That's interesting. You bring up this idea of structured versus unstructured data, right? So the, the traditional data is structured. So when you download uh, something from, from Bloomberg or FactSet, you've got the, the timestamp, you've got the ticker, you know where the earnings are, you know where the revenue is. It's, it's relatively easy to, to work with. And last year's hottest data set that people had to learn how to use was Reddit. 
right? So we've all heard about AMC and, and GameStop and all of this. And um, what you have to do when you're when you're looking at, at something like Reddit is people are misspelling things. People are using acronyms. People are, uh, you know, hands don't mean anything unless it's in, in conjunction with paper or diamonds, right? And you have to learn this this whole vocabulary. But imagine downloading everything from Reddit, downloading everything from Twitter, downloading everything from, uh, you know, Facebook or some other social media and using that to predict a stock price. You don't even know uh, if um, if a tweet is talking about a particular stock or not, and so it's a tremendous amount of work to go through that. It's it's highly unstructured, and there's all kinds of noise in here. There's acronyms and misspellings and emojis and all of that. But what we found was it was super valuable, and and uh, people who knew in the short run that GameStop or AMC is the next stock that these um, that these traders are, are going after uh, either could profit on the long side or avoid some losses on the short side. But uh, Benjamin Graham, uh, who trained Warren Buffett in investing you know, many years ago, he says, in the short run, the market's a voting machine, and in the long run, it's a weighing machine. And so these social media signals are super short in duration. We're thinking three hours or three days. So you've gone through all that work to download everything from Twitter or Facebook or, uh, or Reddit. You've done all that work, and the signal only lasts for like three days. And so the the Reddit crowd was, was very... Uh, uh, effective at moving the, the stock prices around in the short term. But Benjamin Graham says in the long run, the market is a weighing machine. And so what we saw was the CEO and the, and the CFO of, uh, of GameStop and AMC, they said, well, our, our new shareholders want us to survive, right? And the best way for us to survive is to offer, say, a, a $2 billion secondary of new stock, right? Our stock is obviously overvalued. If we had $2 billion in the bank, you know, we'd certainly survive. And so uh, everybody loves our stock, so we're going to give them $2 billion of new stock. And of course, we know that in, in, traditional, uh, in the traditional way of looking at, at stocks, uh, one of the, the biggest uh, forecast of a lower stock price is a secondary issue with, uh, with new stock. And so now GameStop and AMC are down 80% for, from their high. So the Reddit crowd was able to manipulate these stocks higher or uh, have a lot of volume that drives these stocks higher by sentiment in the short run. But in the long run, we really care about um, you know, what the price earnings ratio is, what the price to sales ratio is, and how many shares are outstanding. So the, the, the traditional methods still work, but they sometimes take uh, longer to play out. Or you could only manipulate a stock for some period of time. Keith, when we think about the main actors that would use alternative data, um, at the top of our interview, you mentioned hedge funds. Is it hedge funds that primarily use alternative data? Historically, we've thought of investors as fundamental or quantitative, right? So the quantitative ones, the quantitative investors typically look at a large number of stocks. They have portfolios of 50 or 100 or 500 stocks in a quantitative way because they want the statistics and the factors to drive their returns. And they're less interested in... Um, Let's let's say the the fundamentals of a uh, of a stock, but the fundamental analysts they're the ones who are talking to the companies and they're going out and visiting the stores and testing the the products and following the the new product announcements and all of that. And so historically we had fundamental investors and quantitative investors, but now there's a new word called quantamental. 
right? And so now the fundamental investors are using quantitative data and the quantitative uh, investors are somehow able to quantify fundamental data and put that in their model. So we're really meeting um, in, in between. And so certainly uh, uh, hedge funds are, are involved uh, and there's some, some quantitative signals that, that work predominantly on the short side rather than on the long side. But, uh, you know, certainly long only managers are, are becoming involved as well. And Keith, what are the popular arenas that hedge funds and other actors that use alternative data use? Drew mentioned uh, the use of satellite and geolocation, and he talked about these being somewhat overly used now. So are there new areas um, when looking at alternative data that are coming through? One thing that's, that's really interesting is government statistics. And so uh, companies are, are required to file uh, some reports with, with governments. And sometimes the, uh, the users of your products are filing reports with governments. So uh, one big uh, battleground stock is Tesla. Everybody's always trying to figure out how many cars Tesla sold. Uh, but every time uh, someone buys a new car, they have to go and get a license plate for it. And so you can go to the, the government authority uh, that, that regulates vehicles and sells license plates, and you could, you could uh, get the data from them how many new Teslas were registered in your jurisdiction uh, last week, last month, last quarter, and you could get an idea of, of auto sales that way. We could also look at, um, at product safety. And so uh, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your drug or if your manufactured product is hurting people or killing people, there's uh, required disclosures on that. And some hedge funds on the short side uh, have figured out when that recall is, is going to come uh, based on the number of, of these activity reports. And if you know, you know one more activity report on, on this drug or this manufactured product is going to trigger a recall, that's a, that's a pretty valuable uh, factor on the, on the short side. And then um, we recently saw that some people are watching the, the DNS system and the, the registration of, uh, of new internet domain names and uh, kind of looking behind uh, public websites for, for domains. And so uh, one of the, the, the hot spaces now is buy now, pay later, these, these consumer uh, credit companies. And uh, people were, were scraping these websites and they came across uh, a URL that was combining Amazon and a firm. And about three days before Amazon announced this partnership with a firm, someone found that that URL maybe in a in a staging uh, on a website, and they said, "Oh, it looks like Amazon's going to do a deal with a firm." They buy a firm stock, and three days later, that stock goes up fifty percent simply because they found that URL uh, uh, just a couple of days before that that deal was announced. The AMAN Next Generation Manager Forum 2022 returns in person for its ninth year on Thursday the 26th of May at the Sofitel London St. James Hotel. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals at emerging alternative asset management businesses. Throughout the afternoon, discussions will focus on how to keep on top of regulatory requirements, digitalization to streamline and cut costs, asset raising, and speakers will share practical ideas and guidance on how to successfully start and manage an alternative asset management firm. Register today on the AMA website to hear the discussions, network with peers, and to join the evening drinks reception. We hope to see you there. 
So, so just to sort of summarise, because we, we've gone off in a, in a few different directions here about some of the challenges, but also the opportunities that are there. And, and as, you know, you mentioned this crowding thing. It seems to be a constant, uh, a constant challenge of staying one step ahead when it comes to sort of where the average is in terms of incorporating alternative data. But, but sort of in your opinion, for the short term at least, is it still possible to, to realistically say that you can produce alpha through alternative data? Uh, it's it's hard for me to find uh, find numbers today, but uh, but a couple years back we saw a study that that hedge funds that were using AI and alternative data over a three year period uh, had returned 700 basis points a year ahead of hedge funds that were not deploying uh, artificial intelligence and uh, and alternative data. And so there's been a, um, a a tremendous value to this in the past. But as you said, Drew, it's a it's a huge arms race to um, to deploy more data, to uh, process it more effectively. And of course, uh, the, the holy grail is a, uh, a proprietary data set that is uh, that is lucrative. And that indeed is very interesting, Keith, uh, as you point to investors and asset managers having to move away from the use of traditional data sets to deploying more non-traditional data sets to better inform their ESG thinking. Uh, what are the trends that you're seeing around this, Keith? Uh, you, you've seen a tremendous growth in uh, in assets that are dedicated to uh, to ESG investments, and you're seeing investor demand for more and more ESG data. So, uh, as a general rule, and of course it varies by geography, we're seeing that that companies aren't disclosing uh, enough data. Uh, to give investors the ESG look at their operations that they'd like. So investors are moving beyond the, the disclosures that are voluntarily coming from the companies. And they're uh, looking to these alternative data techniques in order to, uh, to form a, a, a more uh, informed ESG opinion on the company. So Keith, we, we've talked a little bit around the uh, opportunities that are out there in applying alt data, and and you mentioned uh, one fund at least that that significantly outperformed. But I imagine there are some challenges on the horizon as well, and I'm thinking specifically around regulation and uh, the viability of data use in that sense, the ability to uh, scrape data from websites and phones, etc. And then also there's this. Uh, political or, or ethical undercurrent that we occasionally see crop up in the media around people pushing back on the use of data. And I think specifically around the rise of search engines where their USB, uh, USP sorry, is around not being tracked and, you know, WhatsApp and all the rest. I imagine that at some point that's going to create a head-on collision with uh, alt data. Right. And, and so uh, the, the key regulation is uh, the European GDPR, uh, Global Data Protection Regulation, and that specifically prohibits the disclosure of uh, personally identifiable uh, information without the permission of the, of the user. So we really have to protect that personally identifiable 
uh, information. And to the extent that there are um, cybersecurity breaches and, and personal data is stolen, that is, uh, is a key issue. Uh, you have to worry uh, when you're looking at these data sets, was it ethically harvested? And so if you're scraping a website that doesn't want to be scraped, uh, you're not necessarily entitled to that data. So if you sell that data, if you buy that data, if you use that data, you might be in, um, in violation of, um, of some intellectual property issues from the, the owner of, of that website. But um, restricting the use of this data uh, really has some some economic implications, and we saw the the largest loss ever in one day of a publicly traded company happened with with Facebook. In one day, Facebook stock fell by over twenty five percent. And what they said was that Apple increased the privacy settings on the iPhone. Now think about that, right? The the value of Facebook as a company went down 25% in one day. And of course, that was our quarterly report, right? But the value of Facebook went down 25% in one day simply because they no longer had unfettered access to uh, data from iPhones. And that gives us a, a real pause about how much data is transferred uh, from one platform to another and, and the value of that data that's being used. And if, uh, if consumers or regulators get serious about restricting the use of, of personal data, uh, then these, these tech giants might find it more challenging uh, to build the revenue models the way they've had in the past. And, and, and just dwelling on that, that ethical aspect for a while, in a way, I sense this is the, the sort of the, the million dollar question and, and maybe one for the lawyers. But because this is so new, in many senses, this is uncharted territory and, and, and new types of data are coming forward all the time. Who's deciding what's ethical? And is there a process? Is there anything that someone considering dabbling in alt data might look to in the first instance? You you should always uh, decline to have any um, any insight into personally identifiable information. It's a it's a huge risk if you have that that PII in your system or in your servers, and so you should always stray away from from using that. But there's also this idea of data provenance, right? Where did the data come from? And so before you interact with a data set, you should understand uh, how it was harvested and do they have the permission to to have and use this data. That's interesting. So that, that's almost applying uh, an, an ESG type criteria to how you're uh, getting your data sets and that it's not just good enough to, to get data wherever you can. You need to think with an ethical lens about whether it's appropriate. That, that's right. ESG is a huge issue here. And of course, you could use alternative data for, for ESG factors as well. So as more businesses then look to technology to help manage their business is better, then demand for technologists should grow. And this is a key finding actually from a research paper published by AIMA late last year, which pointed to the growing demand by hedge funds for highly quantitative talent, as well as the evolution of finance roles, which traditionally would not require technological expertise to having as a prerequisite a comprehension of coding and or a quant skill. Uh, so what we see is that one of the fastest growing jobs in the world is called data scientist, right? And everybody needs a data scientist, right? Whether you're uh, underwriting uh, mortgages and credit cards, whether you're underwriting insurance, uh, whether you're um, marketing your your goods using um, different different email campaigns, 
if you're um, in, in drug research, uh, data scientists are, are valuable. And we're finding that, that hedge fund people can make drug discoveries uh, simply because they, they don't have that medical training and they could uh, find things in the data that, that maybe the, the medical teams weren't looking for. And so data science uh, can be deployed uh, very broadly. But of course, uh, there's, there's huge applications in finance, both in traditional banking as well as in uh, asset management. So, so this is actually quite a good segue then. At, at the top of the pod, I, I mentioned that you were part of FDP Institute, which is part of Kaya. And I think now is probably the right time for you to just give us a little bit of background on, on what that is for, for anyone that doesn't know and, and where you sort of fit into that broader association. Right. So, uh, so Kaya is Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Association, and for almost 20 years, uh, we've been training people uh, how to use alternative investments in portfolios. Uh, not necessarily mandating their use, but but training them uh, as to both the pros and the cons of alternative investments. And of course, Ama was uh, was instrumental in the founding of of Kaya. And so, uh, over the years, uh, we've we've trained over uh, 12,000. Uh, chartered alternative investment analysts uh, who understand hedge funds, private equity, real assets, and structured products in an institutional context, like a like a pension fund or a, or a sovereign wealth fund. And so, about four years ago, we said. Um, this AI and machine learning is becoming more and more important in finance. Can we add this into the, the Kaya studies? And we found out that that um, AI and machine learning and finance was much too big to add into the Kaya program. That if we added, you know, 100 pages of readings into Kaya, it, it wouldn't do it justice. So we said, let's start a, uh, a, a new exam, a, a new institute called uh, Financial Data Professional. And half of your training is in data science and half of your training is in finance. And so uh, we're teaching financial people how to understand and interact with data science. And we're teaching uh, people who are trained in data science to interact with finance. So half of the exam is on math. We look at classification and clustering, random forest, regression trees. And we also have uh, a, a, a short training requirement in R and, and Python uh, computer languages just to understand uh, the mechanics of, of how some of this works. But then the other half is on ethics in, in uh, data science. And there's huge ethics in the way we use this, uh, this alternative data. Uh, but we also look at uh, how do you build these models of uh, long short equity in, uh, in alternative data? How, who are the people you need to hire and how do you set up uh, an asset management team uh, in data science. What is text mining and insurance? What are robo advisors? And uh, you know what uh, what are the applications in in real estate as well? So there's a lot of financial market applications. So what we do at FTP, it's a one level exam that that uh, looks at those those machine learning and alternative data techniques. Uh, from kind of the, the the classical math and data science view, but then half of it is on the the ethics and the applications of uh, AI and machine learning uh, in in um, in financial markets broadly, because we're including that that credit and that uh, that insurance angle as well. And as Drew has mentioned, you are the number one charter holder of the FTP Institute qualification kit, and congratulations. On that, uh, I'm sure not the only first 
you you received throughout your career. Um, who else um, have taken the qualification? What are the profile of the candidates who do um, the FTP qualification? Yeah, so we're uh, we're excited that uh, we're coming into our sixth exam cycle here in uh, in April, and we've benefited from a, a relationship with uh, with Kaya. Uh, clearly, uh, Kaya is good at the at the exams business and the chartering business, and we know we know a lot of people around the world. But after our first five classes, uh, FTP has charter holders in forty one countries. Uh, and I'm I'm excited that uh, there's there's more FTP charter holders after five exam cycles, and there were Kaya charter holders after five exam cycles. And and what's super interesting about FTP is uh, the the initial growth in in Asia is uh, is significantly faster than than what we have in um, in the Americas or in in Europe. And so if uh, FTP is able to to flip Kaya somewhere, it's likely first in uh, in Asia. And South Korea specifically. I love to see the uh, the friendly competition there. I'm sure you'll be continuing to monitor the uh, the Kaya versus FTP rankings on that, and uh, you'll have to let us know. But uh, but looking ahead, then uh, obviously grand ambitions for for where this institute can go. What's sort of your uh, time horizons for any big uh, any big uh, thresholds you're looking to to beat this year or soon? Well, we're looking to uh, to continue to to grow the footprint. Uh, we're proud to have a, a partnership with uh, with AMA, where uh, employees of of uh, AMA firms, AMA member firms, would get a discount on the on the FTP exams. Uh, but we're looking to uh, to integrate into firms. We're looking to integrate into into universities, and um, and and grow FTP because we believe that um, there's there's a lot of opportunity here. And on the demographics question uh, you asked a little while ago, uh, an important part of our FTP population are um, financial professionals with significant experience. They, they might have earned their, their CFA charter or their, their CAIA 10 or 20 years ago, and they're coming back to, to do FTP. And they say, I see where AI and machine learning and big data are going, and I don't want to be made redundant as the uh, as the old person who doesn't understand these these technology tools, and so um, relative to our um, our our Kaya candidate population, we actually see that uh, there's probably a higher uh, portion of very experienced professionals taking the uh, the FTP as current candidates. And Keith, where can our listeners find out more about the FTP Institute? Yep, FTPInstitute.org. Uh, fantastic and a continued success Keith thanks very much uh, for joining us on the long short today we look forward to having you back on the show very soon uh, thanks Tom thanks Drew and AMA has done its own work on the subject of alternative data indeed uh, the paper has become one of the most popular of our research papers which we've published in recent years this paper being called Casting the Net um, looks at all things alternative data through the lens of the hedge fund industry in terms of those who are market leaders that use alternative data and what the rest of the industry can learn from the experience of market leaders' utility of alternative data. And that's available free to download on AMA's website at AMA.org. 
The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.